You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Born without a left hand and forearm, Anna Johannes began to fight for disability rights and social justice from a young age. After several years competing in pair swimming as an elite athlete, including winning a bronze medal at the 2012 Paralympic Games, Anna has taken her skills from the pool to the realm of business to continue that work as a strategist for Interbrand's inclusive design practice. She's also on the board of Adaptive Sports New England, a Move United member organization, and is an ambassador to the Women's Sports Foundation. Let's chat with her. So, Anna, I know that we met at, a, at an Abilities Expo a number of years ago, but we got to reconnect again uh, not too long ago uh, for National Girls and Women in Sports Day, which I want to talk about. But I think um, for folks that may not know who you are, I know that you got into swimming really early. So talk about um, how early and how you got into it and maybe even why you got into it. Yeah, it's a good question. I was just always drawn to the water. Well, except so I was adopted uh, when I was two. And the first time I came over, my parents tried to give me a bath. I ran down the stairs butt naked and out into the front yard <laughs> where they had to kind of tackle me down and be like, okay. So other than that one time, I have always loved the water. And, you know, we would go to the summer pool and I didn't even know how to swim. And I would just jump in the pool and my parents Ooh. again would have to tackle me and be like, stop it. And so, so Swimming has always, or the water has always been a part of growing up. But then I joined the summer swim team and was just good at it. And so my coach on the team swam for a local club team. So I joined them and was doing evenings and then just kept leveling up and it kept snowballing into bigger and better things. I've tried. Uh, I did tap jazz and ballet when I was younger mm. and I did lacrosse when I was in high school for about a year. And so none of it really stuck. Swimming was always my passion. It's my safe space. And so, yeah, I was really lucky to just keep growing and got to swim in high school and growing with the sport. And, and you said it was your safe space. Why was it your safe space? I, what I love about Paralympic swimming and adaptive swimming is that you, it is just you in the water. And so in the Paralympics, you're not allowed to use any assistive, excuse me, assistive devices. So it's just you, your body and what you can do. And when I was growing up, my parents would have people ask them like, why isn't she in soccer? So she can only just use her legs. And uh, my parents would be like, have you seen her coordination? Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. Like that's not even close to being an option. And so... Yeah, it's so it's just it's just me and the body and what I can do. And what I love about it is that your coach is just always telling you that you can do more no matter what. And obviously, a swim club is, you know, inclusive. Uh, and uh, I, I did you swim on a high school team, too? Or I did. Yeah, we weren't a very good one. But yes, I did. <laughs> oh, Mount Vernon majors. <laughs> <laughs> So when uh, so when did you learn about the Paralympic movement and that that was also a sport uh, in the Paralympics? 
Yeah, another good question. Yeah, when I was on club team and the high school team, I was always the only person with a disability. It's not a rare story, I think, for any Paralympic sport, you being the only one. But my mom was part of a parents group. I can't remember the name of it. I think it's I Can, something about amputees. So it's the parents of uh, kids with amputations and things like that and limb differences. And so when I was about 10 years old, actually, they met up with a swimmer who was a little bit older than me with the same disability and told us about the Paralympics. And so I got to go to my first Paralympic meet. It was actually Athens trials back in 2004. So little <laughs> 10-year-old me just running around, <laughs> bothering everyone as they're training for the Paralympic Games. Uh, but I was able to be exposed to the world of para sports very, very young. And it was great. And it was actually a bit of a long-winded answer. I apologize. But mm -hmm. I remember my first time going on deck and seeing legs and arms and wheelchairs everywhere. And I remember my initial thought was like, oh my gosh, I don't belong here. I'm not this type of disabled. And then now it's 100% the other way. I'm like, these are my people. Uh, it's, yeah, exactly. So now it's like completely switched. <laughs> and why did you why did you think you originally had that perception? I think exactly what I was saying is we were all the onlys. And then when you get into a mix of people missing arms and legs and have MS and CP and spinal cord injuries and VIs and all this, you realize that you share such a deep connection as people going through this world with disabilities. And so I think their original was just, I just never had been exposed to it. But then once you're part of this world, there's no going back. <laughs> <laughs> and so at these 2004 Athens trials. Um, uh, were you? Did you compete, or were you just there to observe? Was that yeah. the competition? Yeah, they had a program to help make sure that other grassroots movements and other like younger kids were able to compete while people are also competing for the Paralympic Games. So I did. I was actually just telling a, a parent yesterday at our local Adaptive Sports New England swim team that it's okay to bribe your kids because at the 2004 <laughs> um, trials, I did the 400 freestyle for the first time and I wasn't supposed to final. And then someone dropped out and I finaled and my mom bribed me to go to finals with the very first kids bop cd so it was a moment in time so bribery worked in that time <laughs> it may not be the incentive today but you no know. yeah i don't think that's the head title but it definitely <laughs> so but i was able to compete and was able to go to finals and even if i wasn't making finals i was able to go and watch these incredible athletes and see what i'm my potential could be and so from that moment, when did you realize, oh, this is something, you know, that I that not only I, I can do or, or want to do, but that I'd be possibly good at it? I think it was probably maybe when I was 12 or 13 years old. I was in middle school and I was swimming with the senior group on my club team. And I was swimming with like the highest caliber people and being able to keep up with them. And my coach really at the time believed in me. And so I, you know, Athens happened. I was exposed to what a Paralympics was and the four year thing. And so um, in 2008, Beijing, I was like, okay, I don't think I'm going to make the team. I don't think that's what this is. But I'm really going to train, start taking this seriously. So it took a couple of years, but from a pretty young age, I was like, this is definitely something I want to do. So 2008, you weren't quite ready, but 2012, I know you made the team and, uh, and, and so walk uh, us through that. 
Yeah, that was incredible. I had the privilege to live out at the Olympic and Paralympic Training Center in Colorado Springs. I moved out when I was 17. So I finished Mm. my uh, high school, my senior year of high school online, actually. So uh, to make sure I was committed to going to the games. And so Moved out there late 2010 and then was able to make the games in 2012, cried my eyeballs out uh, then. And then it was an incredible experience. The London Games, I think, is just the epitome of what a Paralympics can be. The city had such enthusiasm and support for the Paralympics. There were signs everywhere in the city that were like, thanks for the warm-up Olympics, we're next. So it was like, thanks, Phelpsy, we got it from here, you know, (laughs) things like that. And so to have that as my first and and my only games is something uh, I feel really honored and so excited that I have those memories. Yeah, and I think it's still even, what, 10 years later, still kind of the model that many cities uh, strive to to live up to, and, and hopefully LA will in in mm. twenty eight. You know, I mean, I th- mm-hmm. we all look to London as the as that model to to want to have and, and be. So, uh, mm-hmm. definitely a great games to be a part of. Mm-hmm. And uh, and you did pretty well there. Um, and, and I know that you you know you also had a very at various times American and world records. So mm-hmm. uh, so how was it like to you know be at the top of of not only your game but you know the the entire you know sport at some point and then being able to medal in in London. Yeah, crying my eyeballs out yet again is probably the theme for it. Uh, So I got fourth in my individual event for the 100 breaststrokes. I was just touched out. And so that hit pretty hard, but then had the opportunity to be on the relay with my amazing teammates. And so we got bronze. And so being able to just be on the podium, you know, everyone is like, you don't go to the games to get gold. But really, I mean, being able to be on the podium, see your flag raised with other countries and be there with competitors that you've grown up with and uh, your own teammates was actually something really special. And so there, the video of the ceremony, you can hear the announcer be like, okay, well, this clearly means a lot to, to Anna there because I'm just, just bawling my eyes out, just so excited and happy to be there. So it felt amazing. It was, you know, it just validates the work that you're doing for sure. And every, all the support that everyone has given around you. And so after 2012, what was your kind of process and thinking like in terms of whether you'd be, you know, like what, how did you look at 2016 uh, and, and explore 2016? Yeah, it's a good question. So after the games, I think if you haven't heard of, but you get kind of blue, you know, you have this epitome and then it's over really quickly. And so pretty much anyone athlete, I think Michael Phelps did an entire uh, documentary on it called The Weight of Gold. And then we've heard Simone Biles and so many other amazing athletes talk out about the mental health of aspect or the mental health aspect of Mm -hmm. sport. And so... It was, it took about a year to kind of get back into it. So in 2013, I was gearing up like, okay, yeah, that's the quad. You know, you take a moment, you relax, you regroup, and then you start going for the next games. But in 2013, I slipped and fell on ice because swimmers are not made for the outdoors. And I subluxed my shoulder, almost fractured my Mm. shoulder, uh, like the bones inside of it. And I ended up tearing my labrum. It took a while for them to kind of figure out what was going wrong. So unfortunately, that fall was the beginning of the end of my career. But 
And so I swam on it for a couple more years and then ultimately had to make a decision uh, between uh, my overall health. So the condition that I had was causing nerve damage to my only hand. And if I were to keep pushing through, I could lose temp uh, permanent uh, function within my hand. So they were like, you can keep swimming uh, or risk also blood clots and just keep going or you can retire and focus on your health. So it was a weird up and down. I moved to the University of Louisville to train there for a year uh, with the amazing athletes there. And then here in Boston with the Bluefish and Chuck Bachelor. So it was always part of the goal. But then eventually it was like, you know what? Health comes first. Sport is always going to be there. But, you know, you only have one hand. You need to take care of it. Yeah. And I think I mean, we often all, you know, just society in general, so the collective we, you know, <laughs> know about the the ups, right? We see the people, you know, we see the medals and the meddling, but we don't always hear about the trials and the tribulations and the downs even. And so mm -hmm. I'm sure like like what was going on through your mind and and you know, even hard about that, you know, kind of that epiphany. It was really, really hard. I think I, I held on to swimming so much because of the opportunity that it in the platform that sport will give you to help others, really. That's what I I held on for so long was, you know, I knew that if I kept swimming and got to be part of Team USA, I could keep beating the disability inclusion drum along with it. And I didn't see another way of doing that. But then when I got the health news, I realized that sport may not be there, but my passion sure will be. So how can I turn that into something else? It was definitely hard. I uh, had some two very low days and so was able to have the support systems around me to help with it for sure. But being able to carry the passion that you have in sport into afterwards and realize you know, once I realized that, hey, I might be smart. I'm not just good for swimming up and down a pool and being able to kind of get back into the working world and put what I learned in school into process. And then just, again, just keep beating that disability inclusion drum. I was able to learn and transition, but it was, it was very hard. And I think, like you said, we as a society, um, don't tell our athletes that there's anything outside of sport, right? Like you right. play football until you can't anymore or you swim until you can't anymore or when you retire who knows they're they're done unless you're tom brady uh who is now ret retiring twice but um it's so you know just making sure and what i love telling athletes is that you're so much more than just your sport it's an incredible amazing thing to do especially for people with disabilities but you know make sure that you're valuing valuing who you are as a person again a little bit long-winded and off the path of your question but ultimately there <laughs> not not really that's kind of what i wanted to get to because you know even at the national girls and women in sport day event that we were both at mm -hmm. uh you know i remember an athlete saying sport is what you do not who you are and so i mm -hmm. think that often again a lot of folks interpret you know sport as that is that is the one and only thing that 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 person is known for or can do or, or whatever. So I think that you hit the nail right on the head with with um, your, your your response and your answer to that question. And and you're and you are parlaying your your 
passion and interest and desire the sport. I know you're at least, still, you know, you're very involved in adaptive sports in New England, as you previously mentioned, and you're on the board of directors of that organization. It's a Move United member organization for, in full disclosure. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so how are you connected and involved and staying involved in Parasport through that platform and that organization? Yeah, absolutely. So on the board, so making sure that we're making the right decision to get very similar to Women's Sports Foundation, but getting all disabled kids in all disabled sports <laughs> everywhere, uh, period, right? And so, yeah, it was a really great opportunity. So after I retired, I tried to kind of cut cut that part of me out and be like, okay, I'm just going to move on. I'm going to be corporate citizen and, and wear my blazer and <laughs> pretend that my history didn't happen. And so, uh, and then I, I obviously learned that, you know, disability inclusion is always going to be part of me. So make sure that I can really make a difference. So it was here in Boston, my fiance, Michael Prout Jr., who is also a Paralympian, uh, ended up working with Joe Walsh, who's the president of Adaptive Sports New England. So through that, ended up getting involved, whether it's volunteer coaching on Sundays when we have practice to give kids with disabilities the coaching that their club teams or high school teams, you know, that really specific stuff isn't being taught. Or like I said, helping with fundraising or just providing the context of what I'm doing in work, whether it's helping with sponsorship and talking corporate lingo and things like that. So I've been able to kind of just morph it all together and make sure I can speak the language of everyone around me to ultimately get to the the goal of more kids doing sports. Yeah. And I know that, uh, that corporate citizen role, you, you've played that, you've played that role pretty well. And, and how does sport or what are the values and lessons you learned at sport that can translate into, you know, a, professional job or position or role because i think that there's so much value in sport that can can lead to those types of things yeah a hundred percent it does and i think there's even statistics especially for women so women who competed in sport have higher titles and salaries ultimately afterwards once they hit the corporate world but the values of being able to work hard working together with your teammates taking constructive criticism right when you're an athlete you're kind of always told how you can do better one way or the other and so being able to bring the lessons that you've learned from grinding and getting the work done to making sure that everyone around you is also supportive, right? Even if it's like a simple, right? When you're doing a really tough set, it's just like, come on, guys, we got this. We're all we're all dying, but we're doing good. So being able to bring that to your own team in the corporate world, you know, you can't yell at them while, while on deck, but you can certainly say, hey, Sarah, I see that you've been doing a really good job. Keep up the good work type of thing. So I think it all translates well from the you know, I think you think of the like hard aspects of swimming and, and athletics, but also that camaraderie and, and that empathy that you get from being able to see the world in a different way. And you mentioned, you know, that disability inclusion has, has been a, an important part of your, your, uh, you know, ethos, if you will. Um, <laughs> uh, what, what is kind of the, your key or core messaging that you, uh, you know, you share, because I know that you've done some trainings or, you know, other organizations and programs. So what kind of message do you share when you go out and, and, and talk about the importance of that? Yeah, I think the biggest one is, and I think especially with disability, it can seem very overwhelming to people who are new to the space. And so my message is like, yeah, it's complex. It's very diverse. It's intersectional with every other type of identity. And 
there's 1.2 billion of us, 15% of the world's population. If you haven't seen the the campaign, I got to actually work on that uh, with the IPC, uh, International Paralympic Committee. And so my message always to people who are just starting to get involved with disability inclusion is A, make sure you're continuing to do the research. B, I think just kind of expose yourself to the world of disability, follow people on LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever it is, just keep seeing it, right? Like I said, when I went to my first Paralympic meet, it was a shocker. I was like, gosh, I've never seen this. Like there's so many people like that, you know, like I literally have carried legs from one end to the pool uh, to the other or arms or, you know, put the legs into a wheelchair and then move the wheelchair to the end. So it's it's a very, very different world. So kind of just going into it with grace and uh, making sure that you're always taking the cue of the person with a disability. You know, I think there's always a tendency we've seen through a lot of corporate companies kind of doing like, oh, I put a blindfold on so I know what it's like to be visually impaired instead of just listening to people with disabilities and including us and hiring us and representing us. Mm-hmm. So it's it's a lofty thing that I share, but the most thing is like, it's complex, it's going to change, but you need to take the lead from people with disabilities. Yeah, and that it's not, um, you know, just one one size fits all, one, you know, one group, as you, as you mentioned. Yeah. Like, a lot of different, a uh, lot of different, Abilities and disabilities, uh, and and even within like disability, like cerebral palsy, it doesn't affect mm. the same person, you know, there or, or multiple people the same way. So it's like mm-hmm. understanding that and not just grouping, you know, people together. <laughs> you know, is one thing that I think I find a lot in in kind of the 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 exterior exterior world, if you will. <laughs> yeah. Oh, a hundred percent. The best way I like to describe it is actually in the context of swimming. So uh, my classification for breaststroke was an SB8 and I have two centimeters of bone. I have an elbow and then two centimeters of bone. And then my friend who is also missing a hand was an SB9 because she has seven centimeters mm-hmm. of bone. Right. But we're both technically amputees or people with limb differences. And so, but we're Five in total different classifications. Yeah, exactly. And like, <laughs> I always love to explain it like I'm like, we have completely different experiences because of seven centimeters. So, uh, wow, <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. Well, you mentioned um, you mentioned your fiance, which I you know I understand won't be your fiance much longer, right? Very close. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're planning. You're getting married next month. Yes, it's exciting. Yes, Congrats, yes. Congratulations to you both. Thank uh, you. Are, are you are you ready for that? You know that. How, how will that change uh, <laughs> how you do things? I don't think much at all. Uh, Michael Prout and I have been dating for almost, gosh, I think 12 years now. So Um, I don't think anything's going to change, but it is really incredible having a partner who understands disability as much as I do. And we're both fighting the good fight every day. It can be a little bit tiring, as we all know, (laughs) but uh, being able to have each other's back and, and be in the same world is really incredible. So I don't think anything will change, but just knowing that you have that that partner and he's stuck with me forever or have to do a lot of paperwork to get out of it. So <laughs> <laughs> oh, I hate paperwork. <laughs> I know exactly. Screw it. Let's just stay married. <laughs> so we, we've we've talked a little bit about National Girls and Women's Sports Day a little yes. bit. So um, you were in D.C. for two days. Uh, I would love for you to share uh, about, you know, one, what took place uh, during those two days that, that you were a part of, and then why did you, why were you a part of it? It's a really good question. So it's been interesting. I've been, I've had the the honor of being an athlete ambassador for the Women's Sports Foundation for just under a year. It actually started, we were 
on a phone call for a different thing because I was on the social and racial justice council for the United States Olympic and Paralympic committee. So have been meeting some incredible people through that. And I think ultimately ended up meeting the women's sports foundation and the work that they're doing, especially in the racial justice sphere to, and that intersectional fight for women, equality, equality in sport has been incredible, but I think disability is just starting to be talked about, I think in every every context, as we both know. And so they were interested in learning more and I was able to do uh, a training with them. And we, we just talked about disability from all different aspects. And so been able to get involved, got to go to their gala, which was incredible. Got to meet the famous Billie Jean King, uh, <laughs> definitely fangirled over that and have a photo posted to my Instagram uh, the second after. <laughs> but so uh, because of being an athlete ambassador now, uh, being able to serve them a little bit more. So when we went down to D.C., it was community engagement slash also talking to Congress. It was an incredible opportunity. And so it's been really interesting working with Women's Sports Foundation because my focus has been on disability inclusion that I haven't even thought about my own womanhood, to be 100% honest. And now being able to keep fighting the good fight for all women and then especially women with disabilities or different marginalized communities has been even more empowering. And so what we did last week was we had some donor events and things like that. But the biggest thing is we had that community day that you were at and we did it at Howard University. And so we had the amazing college athletes there from softball, lacrosse, and basketball. And so Megan Duncan, I believe, the uh, the president of the Women's Sports Foundation, and then a WNBA all-star uh, angel, and I all got to talk to the athletes one-on-one, -on -one, just the college athletes. And we just had some frank conversations about making sure to, A, stretch, <laughs> take care of your body now. <laughs> it was a little bit about that, but also prioritizing mental health and really staying in the moment. Sometimes as athletes, everything can feel so so narrowed into the focus of your world. So just being able to see everything and, and really appreciate what's around you. But then afterwards, the fun part was that these athletes uh, engaged with community organizations from the area and taught girls about lacrosse and they got to practice with lacrosse sticks and the basketballs and softballs. And it was incredible because you got to see these girls just blossom within the, you know, two, two and a half hours that we were with mm -hmm. them, kind of, kind of timid, like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if I like lacrosse. And then at the end of it, like just lobbing softballs, like out of this <laughs> basketball court, like almost taking people out, like just incredible athletes. And so being able to really come out of that shell and in such a sort supportive environment. So, and then also having both Paralympians and Olympians and WNBA players and hockey players and all different types of sports, being able to talk to these athletes and these girls about what their potential is. You can do anything. So that was the first day. <laughs> and then the second day was National Women and Girls in Sports Day. And uh, the Women's Sports Foundation celebrates by talking to Congress, which is a weird way of celebrating, I must say. <laughs> but Most people may not consider that a celebration. Exactly, exactly. But we were very honored to be welcomed in and got to talk with senators and House representatives about the importance of upholding Title IX, making sure that we are serving 
um, the constituents of women's sports foundations and the way that the senators that we were talking to, the way that they like to engage. And so finding those middle grounds so we can, you know, if one senator's focus is nutrition, it's like, okay, great. The Women's Sports Foundation actually makes sure to provide a healthy meal after every community event. Let's talk about that. And so finding these middle grounds on how we can support each other and uh, just make sure, again, it's coming from Capitol Hill, right? Making sure that women equality is systemic through everything we do. Yeah, and and, and last year was the 50th anniversary of Title IX, so they're just keeping that in the, at the forefront yes. of everyone, everyone's mind and the importance of of, of equitable and op, you know opportunities to play sport um, across the board. Because as you said, you you fight the fight on two on two fronts, right? Uh, <laughs> women and and individuals with disabilities. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> what was it like um, just being able to, you know, I mean, that's that's a most people would be obviously nervous if you're speaking in front of, uh, you know, uh, uh, members of Congress. I mean, that's a big deal. At least I see it as a big deal. So, yeah. what was it like for you to have that experience? Yeah, it was incredible. I grew up outside of DC in Alexandria, Virginia. So have been, you know, in all the national monuments and all the all the museums and stuff like that, but never to to this level. So just being able to see where all of it happens and understand that world a little bit. We're all, you know, dressed to the nines in our business outfits and things like that was just incredible from that aspect. But then just being able to know, you know, senators, the House of Rep, the people who are are changing our lives on a day-to-day basis, being able to sit with them as humans and just talk about this stuff, I think was mm-hmm. a real opportunity uh, and perspective kind of giving opportunity as well. And so, again, just finding those middle grounds, I think, was the most important part of all of it, of how can we support each other just out the gate. And and besides getting married next month, what are some other things that are looming for you or coming down the coming down the pike for you? Yeah, mostly. Uh, so I am. So my title right now is I work for an amazing company called Interbrand. I know this is a podcast, so you can't see my virtual background, but I do have it in my background. <laughs> and so, um, so they have I work on their inclusive design practice, and so what that is is basically working with the biggest companies of the world to integrate disability inclusion, not for just disability inclusion's sake, but for the universal benefit of designing around disability. So very similar to I'm sure most people listening have heard of the curb cut effect where curbs have a cut in it so people who are wheelchair users can do it but if you have a stroller or you know a rolly suitcase it makes it easier for everyone so with that vein being able to take it back to companies and really make sure that it's part of their ethos and their purpose and so that's really it is just working on that helping the corporate world just keep bettering themselves day by day is mostly it and then just continue working with uh, Adoptive Sports New England and Women's Sports Foundation, being able to spread the the mission of sport and just empowerment of both either girls, girls with disabilities, all of it and everything in between. That's awesome. And lastly, how do people, I know that you mentioned Instagram, but if people are just interested in kind of following your journey or what you're up to, what are some of the platforms or how can people connect with you? Yeah, absolutely. Definitely on Instagram. I believe it's Anna F. Johannes. F is my middle name. I wasn't trying to be funny. Um, And so (laughs) 
and then on LinkedIn as well. So it's kind of a personal life versus corporate life, just trying to share messages of incredible organizations that are fighting the good fight here in the, the corporate world as well. So yeah, those two for sure. And lastly, the question I have for you is if you could look back, if, if today's Anna could have advice for the Anna that was 10 years old, what advice would you give yourself back then? I think just take things a little bit easier. I think, right, is similar to what we were telling the college students is really take a moment to take it in and and really broaden your horizon. I think that is something I wish I could have ten, told 10-year-old me is don't get tunnel vision. Don't, you know, just focus on sport and think that that's the only option, but really, you know, take in the world around you, understand who you are as a person and that that is also good enough.